Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so thankful that uh, you are mindful of our needs. Even as we sang earlier, Father, we fail a thousand times in a given day. And yet, you are so loving and so kind. You continue to pick us up. You don't give up on us. Even through our failures, you keep reminding us how much you love us and also how much we need you. We need your spirit to help us to hold on to Jesus Christ. I acknowledge my own need of your spirit's help, Father, to look into sharing the glories of Christ as we see as we see the texts that are open before us today. Your word you've laid out for us reveals the glories of Christ. May your spirit point us to him and our need to respond to his majestic glory and power and greatness through our obedience and constantly desiring to be repenters. Help us to turn from ourselves and turn to you, Jesus. May your spirit work these truths in our hearts. For your glory we pray. Amen. Amen. We continue our series through uh, repentance. A series that I've titled, I Have Sinned, Sign of False or True Repentance. This is actually the fifth message in this series. Uh, in the first two messages, we saw 10 characteristics of false repentance. We saw five in the first and five in the second. And in the third message, we surveyed the entire Old Testament to see what it says about repentance. And in the fourth uh, message last week, we surveyed the New Testament to see what it says about repentance. And for those of you who were there last week uh, or who heard it online, uh, you would have noticed that we saw specifically two parables last week that Jesus taught that helps us to understand about biblical repentance. Uh, the two parables were the parables of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18 verses 9 through 14 and then um, uh, the so-called parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 verses 11 through 32. We saw in those examples uh, how the Bible defines how true repentance looks like. But today, we're going to see, actually today and next week, we're going to see seven characteristics of true repentance and how that looks like in the life of a believer. See, last week we saw true repentance from the perspective of an unbeliever coming to Christ. A lot of times our repentance we think is, that's it, coming to Christ. What we fail to understand is, that is the beginning of the journey. When Jesus said at the beginning of his preaching ministry, in Luke and Matthew 4 verse 17, the kingdom of heaven is near, repent and believe in the good news. What he meant actually was, keep on repenting and keep on believing in the good news. The language is in the present tense. Repentance starts with our coming to Christ and repentance continues till we go be with Christ. So this week and next week, we're going to see true repentance, how it looks like in the life of a professing believer. So if you're here saying that I'm here, <coughs> I've acknowledged Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, then this is of great benefit to you. But if you're still wrestling with, you know, is this Christ the only way? Then you also need to understand, you need to come in with repentance, but also this is the life that's life forever. So you need to know what it means to be a Christian. We're not here trying to get people to make a quick decision. We want people to understand the cost of following Jesus so that for your own sake, you will know clearly where you stand. 
a saving relationship with Jesus Christ is marked and continues by this, what the Bible calls this ongoing repentance, ongoing faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, we are continual repenters. But also the reality is, our repentance is never perfect. We need to actually be repenting of our repentance. And as we see these seven characteristics, the four today, and that's my prayer, you know, that we would see how my own repentance looks like in the light of what God's word says. It may not be perfect, but guess what? It's still something that should remind us. Lord, I need you to keep working a deeper work in my own heart. This is not about the one sitting next to me or the one who's missing today. I wish they were here. God has brought you here, me here. So it's important we see it from that perspective. It is easy to be deceived into thinking my repentance is genuine. That is why we started this series by taking two messages to go through 10 characteristics of false repentance. They all look like true repentance, but they're not. For those of you who who, who, who might not be aware, the, the larger pictures we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew for the last three years, where we started at chapter 27, and, and Judas, when he sees Jesus is condemned, also said, I have sinned. And we looked at six examples in the Bible of those who said, I have sinned, including Judas, but that was false repentance. And that's why we saw 10 characteristics of false repentance because we don't want to be deceived. But it's one thing to know what is not the right kind, the false ones, but also we need to know what is the right kind. What is not is important, but also what is the right kind of repentance is important. But before we look at that, let me refresh your memory by going back uh, to our working definition of biblical repentance, which we've seen over the last three or so weeks. Uh, I said, I know I threw it on the screen the last couple of times because we had a lot more passages, but today it's not as many, so we're going to be working through as I give you uh, some page numbers for those who are not familiar with the scriptures. Uh, biblical repentance, we defined as it's a change of the whole person from sin to God. It's a change of the whole person from sin to God in thought, in emotion, and the will. First, it happens on the inside. In our thinking, that's the intellect. In our emotions, how we feel as a result of our thinking being affected and the will. There's that volitional aspect. I don't want to be like this or I want to continue in this right path. It starts out there. It affects the whole person. And that affecting of the inside will be evidenced outwardly by a life of obedience. So repentance is a change of the whole person from sin to God in thought, in emotion, and the will that will be, that must be evidenced outwardly by a life of obedience. You see, biblical repentance is not merely a change of mind. It's not just, I changed the way how I think about Christ and about myself. It's a change of mind that will, that must outwardly result in a change of life. The direction of a person changes from the inside out. That's the idea. From sin to God. Once upon a time, I was running after sin. I was running after my own way of life. Then God brought this conviction to me. I understood in my mind, I'm guilty. It affected my emotions. I am ashamed of the way I'm living. And then in my heart, I turn to Christ. Through Christ, accepted the gift that the Father gives to me, eternal life. And then, the proof of what happened on the inside, the proof is in the pudding, we say. And then my life starts changing. I was going this direction. Now, I'm starting to go this direction. Yes, I stumble and I fall. But the direction is still changed. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm continually repenting. Now, neither does the Bible nor myself were saying that a person actually has to live a changed life before 
repentance can be concluded as genuine. No, no. In that case, repentance would be a work. The Bible says, when there is a true change on the inside, that will be evidenced on the outside. You see, Bible clearly teaches us, faith is a gift from God. Saving faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, this not of yourselves. It is a work of God. It's a gift from God, not by works. That's why we cannot boast. But did you know that not only is faith a gift from God, but repentance also is a gift from God. I think people misunderstand this idea about repentance. That is why they're so hesitant to take the biblical definition of it's not just a change of mind, but a change of mind that leads to a change of life. So they want to guard the gospel of grace. I'm being very charitable here. Some people are more focused on redefining repentance because the focus is just to get some decisions. The Bible clearly says repentance is a gift. Let me show you three scriptures to support this truth. The first one is in Acts chapter 5 verse 31. If you're using the church Bibles here, it's page 1557. You need to understand that repentance is a gift for two reasons. I'll tell the two reasons after we go through these three scriptures. In Acts 5, Peter and the apostles, this is after Jesus has risen, the church is born, and they're preaching the gospel. There's persecution. First persecution church is facing. The Jewish leaders are telling Peter and the apostles, you cannot preach this gospel. We're going to persecute you if you continue to do that. Notice what Peter says in response to their threats. Verse 31. He, de he declares boldly about Jesus' exaltation following his death and how Jesus is the one who grants repentance to Israel. Look at verse 31. God exalted him, the him being Christ, to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. That word bring can have different meanings depending on the context, to give, to grant, to bring, to allow, to enable, those are the ideas. Uh, in some translations have it as uh, to give repentance to Israel. Some others have it as to grant repentance to Israel. And I here takes it as to bring Israel to repentance, which means the idea is it's done outside of you. This is God doing it in people's hearts. To bring, says this is for the nation Israel. It is God who grants repentance. So repentance is clearly a gift, not a human work. Second passage, go down to Acts chapter 11. If you're in Acts 5, go down to Acts chapter 11. Here is uh, Peter again, uh, page 1568. He's Acts 10. What happens in Acts 10 is Cornelius, this Gentile, non-Jewish person, gets a vision. He calls for Peter. And Peter gets a vision too. He's sent to Cornelius' home. It's beautiful, this whole story. If you've never read it, read it. And as Peter preaches the gospel, Cornelius' household gets saved. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They get saved. They get baptized. Now the church in Jerusalem is a little suspicious. Hey, what is going on? This is Gentiles and... What is happening? So Peter explains the whole thing to them. And as he gives the summary, notice the response of the people from Jerusalem, the church at Jerusalem, Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard this, after Peter completed his explanation, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Acts 5, repentance to Israel. Acts 11, repentance to Gentiles. Once again, repentance is not a human work. It's a gift granted by God. What God demands, God provides. That's the gracious God of the Bible. One more. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2. In case we didn't get the point here, Paul writes in his last letter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, page 1697 in the church Bibles here. Paul is writing to Timothy and by extension to all of us. Uh, most likely this church is at the church at Ephesus. False teachers 
are there. Paul is telling Timothy, don't get caught up with all these foolish arguments and all these speculations. But there is a way how a servant of God, and by extension all Christians, how we should respond to unbelievers. Don't get into arguing and foolish logic and all that and angry at them, but maintain your Christian attitude. And what is the Christian attitude? This is what he says. Verse 23. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed. And then here it comes. In the hope that God will grant them repentance. We cannot work it in their hearts. We have to present the gospel in a clear way with a gentle and quiet spirit, with compassion in our hearts. We're not there to win an argument. We can win an argument, but then lose that person. We also argued at one time. Let's not forget that. We have to have this attitude of gentleness and compassion. See, being gentle doesn't mean we compromise on the truth. Jesus said, I'm gentle and humble in heart. I don't think we would dare question Jesus is compromising the truth. Notice, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Our enemy is not the person we're trying to reach out to. It's a spiritual warfare. The enemy has blinded their eyes. Only one thing will open their eyes. That's the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It's the gospel through which God opens blind eyes. So if that person is sitting in front of you, maybe that's a relative of yours, that always argues, they know exactly what buttons to push, so he explode. That's because we have not been gentle with them. But when we pursue the path that Paul gives us here, whether or not they turn, we follow God's prescription and then we go to God and pray, God grant them repentance. God grant them faith. You open their eyes. See again, what we see, God grants repentance. So, Acts 5, repentance to Israel. Acts 11, repentance to the Gentiles. And here he summarizes, hey, Jews, Gentile, all of the people, God has to open their eyes. So from these three Scripture passages, we clearly see repentance is not a human work. It's a work of God. And that should motivate us in two ways. Number one, number one, we should be abounding in gratitude because we didn't work up this repentance on our own and neither can we in our ongoing Christian journey. We need God to continually help us to repent. Why should God even grant that to you and me? Out of His mercy. So gratitude, number one. And second thing is confidence in evangelism. We don't need to short-circuit the message. We don't need to look at, oh, this is a harsh message calling people to turn from their sins. Maybe I'll just take it out to be less offensive. Once people get in and get saved, somehow without repentance, they get in, then we can work this repentance into this. No. We don't have any authority to tamper with the word of God. Jesus told repentance for forgiveness in his name to be preached in all nations. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to all ends of the earth. Our message is not dependent upon the postal code. Everywhere. It's, there's only one gospel. It's a gospel of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So, repentance is a gift from God. When we are confident of that, we can joyfully, with confidence, and yet with humility and love and compassion, call people to turn from themselves, to turn from their sin, and turn to the Savior who embraces them. That's the only way to life. Having said that, let me repeat once again. When a person, in his or her heart, genuinely repents of their sins and puts their faith in Jesus Christ as a result of God's work in their heart, 
that person will, that person must display an evidence of a change on the outside. I tell you this, according to the scriptures, no one who is truly saved will fail to repent, will fail to obey. It's impossible. It's impossible. Now, yes, our repentance is not perfect. Our obedience is not perfect. But it is a life that is changed in direction, going after God. Even if it's slow, even if it's painfully slow. When we're singing that song a thousand times, and I'm telling to myself, you know, it's 10,000 times 10 times 10,000, I fail. In a given day, five seconds, we don't love the Lord our God with all our hearts. Right there, right there, that tells us we need to be repenting. So, perfect repentance, sorry, biblical repentance. It's not perfect repentance, but biblical repentance is a change of the whole person inside out. There's many examples in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, of people showing this kind of a change on the outside. But I'm going to focus only on one. Only on one for our, for our two messages, this one and the next one. So please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Second, if you're in 2 Timothy, go back a few books. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, page 1650. Page 1650 in the church Bibles. Verses 8 through 11 is what we're going to be focusing on, even though our main focus is going to be verse 11. One verse, we're going to draw seven characteristics of true repentance. We'll see four today and three, Lord willing, next week. Let's start this by looking at verses 8 through 10. We need to get a little context here. Read with me as I read uh, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, uh, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Now, Paul is talking about in the first part of verse 8, this letter that caused them sorrow. What letter is he talking about? Is it First Corinthians, which could be the case? Or it was another letter that he wrote, which is not part of the New Testament, as a follow-up to First Corinthians. I don't have time to get into all those details. But whatever it was, that was a strong letter of rebuke. First Corinthians itself is a very strong letter of rebuke. Now Paul, after writing that letter, he's wondering, how did they take this? I mean, sometimes we do. We hit that send button or the swipe, whatever mechanism or that letter. Hardly people mail letters anymore, but we think, oh, I wish I can take it back. Can I delete it? It's too late. When you hear that whoosh sound, it's gone. And then you don't hear a response. I wonder what they're thinking. You know, so Paul is like that here. He's, he's wrestling through this. What is happening? So he sent Titus to follow up to see what is going on. And Titus came back with this good news, earlier part of chapter 7. Uh, Paul uh, says, you know, God, uh, God lifts up the downcast, those who are down in spirit, we were going through other challenges. Titus came back, and Titus came back with good news. Titus said, hey Paul, they took your letter well. They repented. The, the particular sin we're, we're never given details of, but we know they repented of a sin. Again, that, that would take a lot of time for me to uh, talk about it. Whatever the sin was, the Corinthian church repented. So that's why Paul says, I'm happy. Even though my letter would have cost you grief, it was for a little while. In the short run, it might have hurt you. And I'm, I'm sad I had to do it. But I'm glad it produced the intended effect. And what was the effect? Look at the second part of verse 9. Your sorrow led you to repentance. Meaning you did the right thing, he says. For you became sorrowful as God intended. You see, Paul was aware of two kinds of sorrow people can have for their sin. One that is God intended, God produced 
Godward sorrow and another that is not. It's more worldly. He describes these two sorrows and their results in verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. That's one kind of sorrow and its intended result. What's the result? Leaves no regret. It leads to salvation, life. But then notice, there's a second kind of sorrow and that also brings about an intended result. Worldly sorrow, the kind of sorrow that worldly people have, that your own flesh produces. What is the result it brings? It brings death, eternal death. Link Judas. He felt remorseful. He felt sorry. He even returned the money back. But in the end, it's eternal death. So that's a worldly sorrow. It's that that connected with this that started this whole series. Because when I was looking at Matthew 27 verse 4, I have sinned, there was a remorse. 2 Corinthians 7, 10, there's two kinds of sorrow. So, one sorrow leads to death, that's Judas's sorrow. He said, I have sinned. There's another sorrow. The Corinthians' sorrow here is that it led them to do what is right as God intended. So Paul is comforted that they experienced godly sorrow. He was so joyful, his rebuke brought that intended result that people turned back to God. But now on what basis could Paul say this intended result was produced in your hearts, O Corinthians? On what basis? It's based on seven evidences, seven characteristics that was displayed by these Corinthians which are in keeping with true repentance. These seven characteristics reveal an inside-out repentance. The first four, we're actually going to be looking at the inside part. Next week, we'll see more specifically the outside part. It's very comprehensive, comprehensive. Uh, before we look at these uh, seven, starting with the four today, my prayer is that each and every one of us, aided by the Spirit of God, will pay close attention to them and see if, Lord, search my heart. Is my repentance like this? If it's not, you produce that in me. I want my repentance to be the kind of repentance you intend me to have so that you will get all the glory through my turning. If it's a false repentance, it's a worldly sorrow and that has an intended result also, death. That's why I said we're talking about some very serious issues that have eternal significance. Before I read verse 11, let me also give honor where honor is due. A lot of my thoughts regarding these seven are based on the writing of an individual by the name Richard Owen Roberts who wrote some detailed work on repentance. So I'm glad for that. Uh, having said that, let's read verse 11. Well, I want to read this fully and then we look at uh, the first of the seven characteristics that the Holy Spirit has given to us in careful order. Remember the Holy Spirit is a spirit of order, not disorder. They're, they're arranged beautifully in, in order. Look at verse 11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. He wants them to know. Listen, Corinthians, I'm telling you, you had this godly sorrow because you yourself can see it to have that comfort, your sorrow is God intended. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. You have proved your repentance is real. He wants them actually to find that joy. So that this shows the heart of Paul. He's not confronting them or he didn't confront them so that he can lord it over them to say, hey, I caught you. No, I want you to have this joy of the work God is doing in your hearts and has done in your hearts. And that's the beauty of a heart that truly wants people to turn to God. This is not about a personal accomplishment. This is about God. You get the glory and people rejoicing in God's work in their hearts. Paul is rejoicing with them. So, characteristic number one of true repentance, Paul says, is earnestness. 
Notice how Paul starts out by saying, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness. That word earnestness has the idea of great concern, a hurrying, a haste, an eagerness. In this context, it refers to the attitude of the Corinthians in dealing with their sin. In other words, they didn't have a casual approach in dealing with their sin. They, they looked at that with, hey, this is serious. I shouldn't be lingering around. Lot lingered in Sodom. says the angel had to pull his hand out. Lot, Sodom is going to burn and you're lingering, lingering around here? No. That's the kind of seriousness they had. Sin has been brought to my attention by the Holy Spirit. I cannot be careless when it comes to dealing with my sin. Unfortunately, that's our tendency. Dealing with sin in a very superficial manner. Gloss over it for a few minutes. We don't want to go too deep. Because it bothers us. David cries out. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139 verses 23 through 24. See if there is any offensive way. It's like cancer. As most of you know, our family has been going through cancer. One of the things in a scan, it's like any traces left. Why are we particular about any traces? Because we know it breeds more. That's David's idea here. Any offensive way, root it out. Show it to me, Lord. Root it out. David wants to make sure he addressed all sins, not what we call as oh, the major sins and the minor. Who makes that choice, major sin, minor sin? As if God says, let me consult with you on your definition of sin. No. No. Every sin is offensive to a holy God. Paul warns us, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. He's writing to professing believers. Today we are told, don't call believers to examine themselves. Wait a minute. I need to examine myself if I know I'm a believer. Just because I'm a preacher doesn't exempt me. Examine myself. I have to do that. And I have to call others. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Which means we can't fail the test if our life is not showing proof that our heart is truly changed. In our church, we break bread every week. After this service, we will do that today as well. One of the passages we remind people is from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. right? Examine yourselves before you eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Why? If you examine yourself, you judge yourself, and you repent of it, you avoid that eternal judgment or even that severe physical disciplining that you can receive from the hand of the Lord. All these passages would be meaningless if repentance involves a shallow examining of our sins. Once in a while. If we lack this earnestness, Paul says, it means we don't really understand the kind of holiness that our God demands. Or perhaps we're harboring sins, we're cherishing sins that we don't want to give up. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have heard my prayer. That is why maybe some of our prayers are not being answered because we're holding on to sin, whatever sin that might be. Sin breeds sin. Cancer breeds cancer. Sin breeds sin. Just like one hole can eventually sink even a large ship. One sin left untouched. It's one thing to struggle with that sin, but it's another thing to not even think about it. It can fester and breed other sins and soon there will be a great fall. What about you and me? Do we take enough time and care to plead with God to show us everything in us that displeases Him? Our thoughts, our motives, the words we speak, and our actions. Listen, if we've spent years sinning, let's not be fooled by thinking that if we just take a few moments to examine our lives, we'll be fine. 
Oh, we've developed many patterns. Even sometimes as Christians, we've just been okay with our words. Okay, it's, it's just in the heart. At least I'm not acting it out. We're glad you're not acting it out, but that doesn't cut it either, right? Jesus connects hatred in the heart with murder. That does not mean the other extreme, you know. It's like, hey, I have lust in my heart. I might as well go commit adultery. It's all the same. No, no, there's a little difference there too. So, see, our human minds can just, depraved minds can just twist everything. That's why we must take time to examine our thoughts, our motives, our words and our actions. We need to exhibit this kind of earnestness, this deep concern that Paul is talking about here that's required as part of biblical repentance. So that's the first characteristic of true godly sorrow that produces this God-pleasing repentance, earnestness. Notice the second characteristic that Paul talks about how this godly sorrow that these Corinthians exhibited as a result of their true repentance, eagerness to clear themselves. Look at the second part of verse 11, what he says. The second thing after, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself. That's what this godly sorrow has produced in you. You see, when when you read that phrase, uh, eagerness to clear yourselves, we often think of that as like self-defense or justification. You know, hey, I'm not as guilty as you make it out to be. I had my reasons to do this. I was not me. So and so provoked me and all that. That is not what Paul is talking about here. Because that's our response and we read our response into the text often. What Paul is talking about here is that I don't want to waste any time or effort to clear myself of this charge of sin. There was a charge that Paul laid on them. Church, you're guilty of this. Or this one individual, you're guilty of this. And this person saying, I want to clear myself of this charge in a right way. You see, when we sin, God affirms that we have sinned. The Holy Spirit, through our conscience, tells us we have sinned. Satan accuses us in the presence of God that we have sinned. And the only way to clear ourselves of that charge is how? Go back to Christ. Ask Him to forgive us. Believing that His shed blood cleanses us of all sin. That's the only way to clear ourselves. First John 1 John 1.9 clearly says, If we confess our sins, that word confesses, speak the same thing. God says, you have sinned. I agree with God and say, I have sinned. I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want to keep committing this sin. Even though sometimes there are those sins that keep tripping us often. When we go say that, Bible says, we do that, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. On what basis does God purify us? First John 1 John 1.7 already said the blood of Jesus, his son is the basis through which we're purified of all our sins. That is how we clear ourselves of the guilty charge, genuine confession and repentance as we seek the blood of Christ to make us clean. That is why we must go to God daily with an eagerness to clear ourselves of our sins because whether we like it or not, daily we sin. This reminds us how serious we need to get in terms of our daily time alone with God in confession. If we spend a minute or so here and there, Lord, sorry I sinned, but here's my laundry list. Give this to me, give that to me, get me out of this, get me out of that. You see how shallow our repentance is. That's why Paul says there should be that eagerness not to clear ourselves before others. It's just an important thing too. But mainly, we don't want this charge sticking on us. And the only way that slate will be wiped clean once again is through the shed blood of Christ. But how can I get that cleansed if I'm not even asking God to bring my sins to my attention? And how can He bring this to our attention if we are having a drive through mentality when it comes to daily time with the Lord? True believers, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, understand and care for ongoing holiness. They fear sin, first and foremost, 
because it robs God of his glory. Second of what it does to us and the people around us. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. You see, we don't enter by the narrow gate and then walk on the broad road. Even the way is narrow. The way is narrow. And the road, that road is marked by a, that narrow road is marked by a daily consuming eagerness to clear ourselves of every guilty charge. That's the second characteristic Paul tells us of true repentance. Look at the third characteristic that godly sorrow produces, indignation. Notice what he says back to verse 11. What earnestness, what eagerness, and the third one is eagerness to clear yourself. Third one is what indignation. That word indignation means to be angry, to experience a feeling of disgust, not towards others, toward ourselves. God, how could I do this to you? You do so much for me every day. How could I do this to you? Holy Spirit, how could I grieve you like this in spite of you being so merciful, so kind to me? I am so angry at sin in general. I am so angry with myself. Not in the sense that how could I do this because that's a sense of pride. How could I do this to you who is so loving and so kind to me? I am so uneasy in my spirit. I am so uneasy for being so unlike Christ. So unlike, we sometimes on our knees we pray, Lord Jesus make me like you and as we get up, something comes out of our mouth that is so unlike Christ. Have you ever experienced that? And you feel even more miserable now. The Corinthians experienced that kind of a feeling. They were overwhelmed by shame and sorrow and feeling of that wretchedness. You see, that's why often in the scriptures we find people expressing themselves like words like, I'm a worm, I'm wretched. We find that in the writings of the older generation. Today, we're told, no, don't do that. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector is beating on his chest. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Turn your wrath away from me through the means of a sacrifice. That's what the word mercy means. We become too sophisticated, or at least we are told that's low self-esteem. If you look at yourself as a sinner. We're constantly reminded, even in the church, how valuable we are in the sight of Christ. And yes, we are valuable in the sight of Christ. And because we are loved, we must feel even more miserable for hurting the one that's loved us so much. Because of how much he treasures us, that should cause us to feel more ashamed. He must keep on increasing. I must keep on decreasing. How can I keep on decreasing if I'm constantly overawed at my own worth? All our worth comes only because of Jesus Christ. When I sin, I'm grieving Him. That should drive me to have this anger towards just the presence of sin. That's why we look forward to heaven. Because there won't even be a presence of sin. I tell you, our reaction for our own sin reveals a lot about us. We are often disgusted with the sins of others. Remember that Pharisee? That's what he did. If we lack a genuine grief, a genuine anger, a sorrow, a disgust at our own sin, we don't have true repentance no matter what we claim. It's not a godly sorrow. It's a worldly sorrow. And the church is filled with people with such worldly sorrow. Oh, I know I shouldn't have done that. But I don't think it's such a big deal. We are so used to God's mercy, we take Him for granted. That's our problem. That's our problem. But people who take their sin seriously will manifest an indignation. In fact, they care so much about their holiness that they would even be 
open to receiving correction from others about their sin. Because what's the goal? Lord, see if there is any offensive way in me. We want this to happen in a way that nobody else knows. But God sometimes brings our offensive ways to our attention through the mouths of others. God forbid someone correct me. That should not be our attitude. If we are sincere about our holiness, I don't care with what motive someone points that sin out to me, whether it's a Christian or a non-Christian. I just want my sin pointed out to me because I have a lot of blind spots. I'm always biased for me. We must welcome correction, even if it's from a younger person. Welcome it. because that's We say, God, speak to me. Someone speaks to us, we're angry. Oh, the preacher spoke to me today. Well, you just prayed, God, speak to me. We want everything, you know, in a kind of a superficial way. Nobody should know. It's my business. We don't call adultery adultery anymore. It's an affair, private affair. We're redefining words. But a heart that wants to pursue holiness, wants to know all the sins it cherishes, no matter the cost, because it wants to please Jesus Christ, the Holy One. Actually, if we cannot tolerate people correcting us, we're unrepentant, we're proud. The Pharisee, remember, he went home with a guilty verdict upon him. Why? Because he had a disgust. I'm not like this wretched tax collector. He wasn't disgusted about his own sin. In fact, he didn't even have any sin according to him. He was so disgusted and angry about the sin of the tax collector. But the tax collector had a disgust and anger not for no one else for his own sin. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. He kept beating his chest again and again and again. And guess what? He went home. He came in with a guilty verdict on him, but he went home justified. The Pharisee went home guilty in bold and in italics underlined. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. So do you, do I show that kind of a response, that kind of an indignation, feeling of anger, disgust and shame over our own sin? Whether God brings it to our conscience directly or He brings it through someone else or He brings it as we read the scriptures, whatever be the case, what is our response to our own sin that reveals a lot about our repentance if it is genuine or fake? That's why we must plead with God. Show it to me clearly, Lord. Produce that kind of reaction in me. We cannot just engineer it ourselves. We need God even to do that in our hearts. Number four, fourth characteristic that godly sorrow produces, the last one for today, fear. Fear. Notice what he says. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, number one. What eagerness to clear yourselves, number two. What indignation, number three. What alarm. That word alarm has the idea of fear. Fear is an appropriate mark of genuine repentance. What kind of fear are we talking about here? I believe the fear that Paul is talking about here has to do with what sin can do to a person's spiritual life. Not to mention their eternal destiny especially if sin is not taken seriously. See, Paul realizes, if I leave this sin unchecked, I don't know where this can lead to. And believers should have that kind of a fear. I'm in control. No, I'm not in control. I cannot be casual about one sin because sin breeds sin. Soon, right now I'm I'm tolerating it. Then soon, I will justify it. And soon I will even promote it. Romans 1 ends talking about the Gentiles, these sinners. It describes all of all of those who are far away from Christ. Not only do they take pleasure in their own sin, but they also promote that. They applaud others who do the same sin. You and I can do that too if we leave our sins unchecked. And lo and behold, churches spring out that way. We believe God's not a God who punishes. Let's not talk about hell. God never sends anyone to hell. You might say, oh, I'll never go to that extreme. 
Beware. Don't trust your flesh. I cannot trust my flesh. We have to have this kind of a fear. We don't want to look close at our sin because it makes us uncomfortable. Why? If I look at this, then that's going to show another sin. Another, another. All, all my day, I'm just going to be thinking about this. What's at stake here? Eternal destiny. i got too many things that's going on in my life right now. There's nothing more important than eternal destiny. Because you can lose your life today. Then what? You will have an eternity to regret, but it's too late. It's too late. So that is why the heart that is truly repentant makes much of its own sin. Not to fall into despair, but to move that heart back to Christ. To see the worth of Christ. To see it is worth pursuing Him. It is worth turning from our sins and turning to Him. A repentant heart makes much of its sin. Do you want to know how sin deceives us when we don't take sin seriously? It convinces our heart that it's not so bad. Look at others. Or it convinces us in another way. Deceives us in another way by convincing us to think it's not so urgent, you need to deal with it today. You can deal with it later on. And when that tomorrow comes, it's today. And before you realize, there are many tomorrows have passed by. Now the conviction doesn't even come. That's why Bible says, beware lest your heart be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. It can be led astray. Sin, Satan did not come to Eve as an enemy. He came as a friend. I'm your well-wisher. I want you to be happy. So once he got her, she saw nothing but that one tree. She had everything in the world. Everything. That's what sin does. Lose sight of all the good things we have. That one thing. I have to have it and I have to have it now. I cannot think of a life without it. I know it's wrong. But maybe next year I'll cut it off. And when we do nothing, when we remain that way, guess what happens? Our heart becomes harder and harder. Harder and harder. So the only way to prevent our heart from hardening is to keep on repenting, keep on cleansing. We talk about sometimes for the body, you know, a cleansing. It's good to go through a cleansing. That's why we go to the blood of Christ. Or that continually that will help us to cultivate a broken and a contrite heart. A heart that trembles at God's word. A heart that continually fears sin. A heart that continually fears robbing God of his glory. A heart that genuinely fears bringing damage to others. Including our family members. Church members and even unbelievers. We never sin in isolation. We might sin in isolation but the consequences affect more than us. More than us. That husband who is given to pornography fix the family. That wife was given to gossip and greed affects the family. That family that sins affects extended family members, affects churches. Imagine if husbands and wives, young people too, we really, really take fearing sin seriously. Talk about fearing God. If we don't fear God, that's why we don't fear sin. Each feeds off the other. One sin can send us to an eternal, Christless place of suffering where there's nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place that the Bible describes as hell. We don't fear this. And our culture doesn't teach us anyway, in any shape or form, to fear God. There's great damage done when we don't fear God and when we don't fear sin. That is why we need to cultivate this godly fear. Where are all the godly fearers? Subtitle of a book. Where have they gone? Thankfully God has always left a remnant. You and I can be that remnant with the help of God that I will fear God. 
Joseph ran, leaving his coat behind, but kept his character. Why? Because he said, how can I do this and sin against God? Sin against God. The Corinthians did not take the sin lightly because they had a fear of what greater damage it could do. And that's why they repented right away. That's why they repented right away. Look at me at First Peter chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. We're going to be closing soon. First Peter chapter 4, page 1731. 1731. We need to remember, Peter is writing to suffering believers who are going through a extremely hard time. Look at what he says in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, the church, professing believers. It is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Do you see this here? What Peter is saying is this. Listen, even for the godly, it's going to be a brutal experience. Meaning the Christian life is a hard life. It's a joyful life for sure. But it's also a hard life because we're battling against sin. Battling against self, our desires and the enemy that keeps on attacking us and the world that drags us back to its fold or seeks to drag us back to its fold. So Peter is telling God is doing this cleansing work beginning in his own people and if it is so tough for them how much harder it's in comparison. We need to come to grips. This Christian life is a life filled with challenges. But praise the Lord, we're not alone. The Holy Spirit is given to us to empower us to run this race faithfully till the end. There is a joy of a life that is given to fearing God and fearing and hating sin. There is a joy. Even in the midst of tears, you might face rejection. People may call you a fool. What do you expect? We're not of this world. Why are we expecting commendation and praise from people who are in the dark? Is it not enough that the king of the universe has accepted us in his son. That's enough for us. Christ is enough. We sing that song, Christ is enough. In our practical life, is Christ enough? We're commanded to work out our salvation with fear and godly trembling. In Philippians 2, verse 12, fear, fear. Where there is the presence of genuine repentance, genuine godly sorrow, there will be evidence of a heart that fears taking sin lightly. So four characteristics we've seen. Earnestness, a sense of hurrying, eagerness to deal with sin. Eagerness to clear ourselves. That's the second one. I want to make sure in God's sight I'm clean. There's only one way. Sinners plunge beneath the blood of Jesus. Third, we have to have this sense of disgust and shame toward our own sin, indignation and forth of fear. For our own sin. We're going to stop here today. <laughs> Lord willing, look at the remaining three. As how from the inward, everything flows out also. But until then, why not we practically reflect on these and the truths we've been seeing all these weeks so that God will produce in us this kind of a repentant heart. Our pilgrimage on earth is a pilgrimage that involves ongoing repentance from sins. Ongoing. Until we see Christ, until the presence of sin is removed, we will need to repent. It's a beautiful. And in Russia, when a person is born again, you know how they describe the person? Repenter. So we're unable to support Russia right now because of what is going on. But in our newsletters, for those of you in the past, you would remember, so-and-so repented, repenter, repenter, repenter. 
This message is lost today, but let it not be lost for us. Let's reflect on these truths and keep on calling people to turn from their sins and turn to Christ as well and pray. As we keep calling them, we keep calling upon God to grant them that repentance and to grant us that kind of repentance ongoing as well. And for those of you who are far away from Jesus, we're so glad you came today. So glad. The message is the same. You need Jesus Christ. You need to turn from yourself and turn to Jesus. Nobody else can save you. It doesn't matter what faith background you're from. It doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are. Jesus Christ welcomes everyone who's willing to turn from their sin and turn to Him. Please come. Please come. Repent. Repent and live. That's the Holy Spirit's call. That's Jesus' call to you. Turn from your sin and find life in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your mercies. Help us, Lord, to be this kind of repenters that you call us to be. And thank you so much for providing what we lack and what we can never get on our own, this faith and repentance, so that we can live a life that is pleasing to you. Forgive us. Forgive me. Who am I, Lord? Who am I to talk about this? But thank you for reminding me continually. I need this more than anybody else. And just as much as others need in a sense also. So please help us, Lord, to be repenting repenters so that we can bring glory to Christ in whose name and, in whose, and for whose sake we pray.